Well, this week uh, ties a bow on the back end of the series, Be Blessed. It's an eight-week series. If if you have a Bible, take it and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is the inaugural message of Jesus when he stands up uh, on a mountain and then he sits down and he begins to teach them. And the word that comes out and out and out again is the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who stand for righteousness and are... are, uh, our peacemakers, right? and, and now we're at number eight in the series. If ever there were a paradox, this would be it, and the whole series is full of paradoxes, but the series has been tough. If you've been here for many of the messages, I've been here for all of them. <laughs> you laugh, but there are times I wonder if I'm all the way here, you know? Thank you for that amen. Thank you. But this one's a tough one because... Uh, this one is a runaway hardest. You, you're saying, oh, number four, how to be merciful. Or, oh, I couldn't stand that one. It, it, you know, this one's going to be tough. And so if you'll hang on and just kind of white-knuckle your way through this one. This is number eight in the series, and then we're going to go to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we're off to a better land. But uh, this one is, is how to live the blessed life even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when it doesn't seem like it, the passage is blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10. Persecuted because of righteousness. Because Christians, whether you know it or not, are the most persecuted people in the world, have been and are today. The most ignored, most unnoticed, most re- least reported, most overlooked in the news. The International Society for Human Rights states for us, and this is not a religious group, this is just a statistic company, They say 80% of the violations today in human rights are against Christians. Marshall and Gilbert, in their book, Persecuted the Global Assault on Christians, writes, Christians are the world's most widely persecuted religious group, according to the studies of the Pew Research, which is a nationally acclaimed research company, Newsweek, The Economist, and others. A woman's caught with a Bible, publicly shot to death. Elderly priest is abducted. Never seen again. Three buses full of students and teachers are struck by roadside bombs. Those aren't casualties of the war. These are Christian believers being persecuted for their faith in the 21st century today. Statistics tell us, too, that perhaps 50, maybe as many as 70 million Christians have died to the cause of Christ. In other words, they've died for their faith over the last 2,000 years. What church historians are telling us is this. Half of the deaths have happened in the last 100 years. The first Gulf War we found when we went in to Iraq, we found 1.3 million Christians. Today we can barely find 100,000. That's a holocaust. In North Korea, Sudan, all the stands, the countries, Kyrgyzstan, other stands. And in China, you know the stories of suppression, colonization, of missing people. You're saying, are you sure that's persecution? Here's what we do know. It, it, you, you say, well, are you sure they're cleansing the land of the Christian faith? All we know is that a decade ago, there were churches, there were Christians, there were pastors, and today we can't find any of those in certain places. They're just missing. The Global War on Christians by John Allen, he writes this, in effect, our era of witnessing the rise of the new generation of martyrs, underlying the global war as Christians in a demographic reality that more than two-thirds of the world's 2.3 billion Christians now live outside the West, living outside where we do, often are beleaguered minority up against the hostile majority. 
I hope you get this. We have it easy. In fact, I think we have it too easy. You have too many options. You only go to church when you have nothing else to do. Got something else, sorry if that offends you, but maybe true. Whereas the church in China, they go to church even if that means they lose their job. See, world of difference in the way they view church attendance and spirituality and Bible reading and possession of the scriptures. And on Tuesday, we will honor our veterans, and rightfully so, we should do that. But this last week, just a week ago, was November 1, known as All Saints Day. The day we remember, it's the Veterans Day for those who died to the cause of Christ. And it was a hallowed day. You don't know it as All Saints Day. You know it as the day before, Hallowed Eve. Hallow's Eve is Halloween. And that's what's kind of hijacked All Saints Day. But All Saints Day is a day we remember those who died for the cause of Christ. So continue to remember those who are in prison, who are together with them in prison, and, and, and live as if you were the mistreated, Hebrews chapter 13, and you were suffering. And we realize, too, that in fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life, Paul writes to Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life is going to be persecuted. And you know what, today we're not persecuted in the U.S. I, I'm just not convinced all that much happens. I mean, people don't treat me badly because of my faith for the most part. We're pressured, but we're not persecuted. We're pressured to be silent. We're pressured not to speak of our faith, to hold our tongue. We're pressured not to just use our convictions or to share them. People, here's what it is. What I see today is people want the value of Christianity. They just don't want Jesus. They want you to be honest so they can take advantage of you. They love that you're honest, that you're prompt, that you're a hard worker because that works in their favor. They just don't want the Jesus that comes with those values. And so that they will settle for their own dishonesty to take advantage of your honesty. If you don't write any other notes, write this line down, and then you can, but if you want to write other notes, I'm going to, you have plenty in the bulletin insert. Write this sentence. Christianity, Christianity is not for wimps. Okay? That's just the reality. It's not. If you came here thinking we're going to sing fa-la-la and, you know, carry some flowers and, skip our way to heaven. Well, some people do that, but not many. We love that Christianity is full of love and forgiveness and reconciliation and grace, but we're mistaken, sorely mistaken, when we think that all that will come back to us. It won't, this side of heaven. It'll come back, but in the next life. Jesus put it this way. Jesus is the, is the message. He's the one we follow. He put it this way, and John records it. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Okay? Oh. If you belong to the world, it would have loved its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you to come out of the world. That's why the world hates you. They hate you. Why? Because you're righteous. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He, he spoke that prophetically and to confirm that's the future. He's saying that, you know, th that is not what you put in a church brochure, Jesus. You know, come to my church, get persecuted. You know, it, it's just not going to sell well, is it? But Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, the story would be different. John 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, so why don't people obey the light? They, they love darkness. It's what they know. Instead, they, they go after the darkness. They don't like the light. Why? Because... 
Their deeds are evil. There's a difference. It's right and wrong. It's plain as light and day. People love their darkness. It's comfortable to them. It's what they know. And in light, you see the mess, don't you? You just see the mess. How many of you have ever done drywall work before in your life? You've finished drywall? Anybody finished drywall? You know what I'm talking about, right? And when we get done with it, you know what I tell my wife? I'm going to go to the store now and get some lower wattage bulbs. If you've done drywall, you know where I'm headed. Because it's just not right. It's that no matter how much you put on. I start with a 12 by 12 room. By the time I'm done mudding, it's only 10 by 10. You know, I keep, I keep mudding. Finally, I just give up and put lower wattage bulbs in so it's darker. Do you know why I want it darker in there? So you can't see my blemishes. Remember the name Doris Day? From, if you've never seen a Doris Day movie, get on YouTube this afternoon, look up Doris Day. They had a way, even as she aged, of fuzzing her body. So everybody else was crystal clear. And then there was lovely Doris Day. They, they changed the visual. Why? Because she was aging and getting wrinkly. It's just the reality. We don't like the reality. Our deeds are evil. So I, I, here's what I want to do. I want to do two things. One is, how do you think about this? So it's our thinking process. And then what are you going to do about it? Those are the, kind of the two parts of the message. You're saying, you're not done yet? No, what I gave you is just the introduction. And that was the easy part. Okay, how do I think about persecution? What do I do? How do I handle it? And then what am I going to do about it? Okay, now... If you're here for the very first time, let me just encourage you, come back next week. The message will be happier, <laughs> more joyful, be a lot more happening. This is a tough message to hear, but you know what? It's the truth. It's the truth. So how do you think about this? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Back it up again. <clears throat> Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. How do you even think about this? Four points. Number one, we're blessed because we stand for what's right. We know the difference between right and wrong because we follow Christ. Blessed are those who follow and do the right thing. There is going to be a holy moment of confidence. Even when it doesn't seem good, it, you, it's not going well. In fact, it's going quite badly. But you know before you, when you stand before God, you're doing what's right. Why does righteousness in a situation like that stand out? Because everything else is so wrong. That's why it stands out. Number one reason. We're blessed because we stand before God and we do so righteously. Secondly, we identify with Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you, verse 11, and persecute you, persecute you falsely because of me. The end of the verse, because of me. It's what happened to the Savior. No matter what he said, people twisted and rejected what he had to say. And, and what Jesus faced is what you and I will face. And now we know not only what he faced, but we know how he would feel in that moment. And just like any kind of criticism or or insult or harassment, Jesus faced it, and we, we will face it because of him, because of him. Jesus takes note when you do that. Thirdly, 
let me just encourage you, there are going to be rewards. Look at the front end of verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Not on earth, not on earth. Get that. Great is your reward in heaven. This is the long-term good result. So we have to focus on that. That's kind of the mindset. That's why we have to think about this heavenward. And we have to endure for the moment, which is way better, knowing that the long-term benefit's way worth it. Jesus promises reward. Heaven's heroes, I, I'm convinced, will not be pastors from America. I'm afraid of that, but I think they'll be pastors and church leaders and servants, teachers, children's workers from Sudan and Liberia and Chad and China and Kyrgyzstan. I think there's some great heroes there, probably people we've never even heard of. And so when the pressure comes your way for standing for the truth, understand this. This is your chance for reward. Stand well, stand graciously, but stand for the truth, knowing that there's a reward out there. But there's a fourth way to think about this, and it comes to us in the back end of verse 12, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. You know what? They beat them up, tore them out, kicked them out of town. What, what do you think they're going to do with you? Is it any, you think you get better treatment? Somehow, we think if we just do better, um, it'll, it'll come out. But that's not true. We actually, if we just change our thinking to realize I'm standing in good company. I'm with Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'm with Nahum and Habakkuk, Old, Old Testament prophets. I'm with John the Baptist. It's almost like we need training for this, isn't it? Because we're not used to this. This isn't the kind of thing you say, oh yeah, I, I got harassment training down at my church. You don't know, think of that. But I thought about that this week in light of uh, what we know about American history. In the 1950s, there's a group of people called the Freedom Fighters who were out for, for some civil justice issues. And if you go back and read the story about them, they worked for a more perfect union. And the, the country was challenged trying to find its way. And, and so when they knew they were going to get on a bus or go to a cafeteria or a restaurant or go to a gas station, drink from a fountain, didn't matter what it was, they knew they'd be ridiculed. They knew they would be facing harassment. So you know what they did before they went out and did that? They practiced. Little known fact, they practiced. And then their own would ridicule them, spit on them, yell at them, scream, do all kinds of unsightly things. You know why they did that? To get them ready, toughened up for when they hit the street. That way when they hit the street, they were not shocked, they were not surprised. So I, I'm encouraging you this week not to grab a brother and thrash him, throw him to the street and everything else, but, but help each other sharpen your focus on what you could do when you face this kind of challenge with your faith. In fact, these are your small group notes. This note you have inside your bulletin, the back side actually is what the small group, I'm, this is your assignment this week. I want you to go through this like these were exercises. What would you do and how do you illustrate this and how can you help each other? Because how are you gonna handle it? Here are 10 steps in handling it. Number one, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Even if you suffer for what's right, you're blessed, Peter says. So don't, don't fear the threats. Easier said than done, Peter. <laughs> yeah, easier said than done. People who are not scared, you know what I say about them? They are not telling me the truth. You know, I, I would just be scared. He's saying don't be afraid. Like any battle, it, if the enemy can get you to run prior to the battle, he's won the battle. They've embarrassed you and embarrassed the cause, so don't run from it and 
and don't fear. Know the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Okay? Number two, put your focus on Christ. Set apart Christ. Revere him as Lord. Remember, this is about Christ, not about me. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So I want to reflect his glory in every way. Okay? Number three, make the most of the opportunity. Always be prepared to give an answer. Make the most of that. So speak up. Think through how you would answer. Prepare. In fact, I think it's okay to practice that. In small groups, practice that. How, would, how do you deal with this when someone asks you to shave the numbers, to clock in for them, to do the wrong thing, to, to whatever it would be? Your attitude in this will communicate more than the words. So you not only have to have the right words, but you have to have the right attitude about it. So you ask the Lord, guard my heart because out of it is the wellspring of life. I, I want to make sure I guard my heart. So make the most of the opportunity. And then number four, don't be surprised. This is the one that gets me off all the time. <gasps> yeah. ha, he hates me. How could that be? I'm so likable. I mean, what's, what's wrong with him? I mean, he doesn't like me or he doesn't get along or he doesn't agree with me. Isn't that Crazy to say, I just thought everybody thought the way I thought. Did you ever think that? thought everybody thought the way I thought. No. And then I had an older brother who told me, Dave, nobody thinks the way you think. <laughs> nobody. Don't be surprised. Dear friends, 1 Peter 4, and this is kind of a study of 1 Peter, by the way. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, the trial that you have that's come on to you to test you as though something strange has happened to you. No, this is normal, Peter says historically, we talked about this a week ago with peacemaking, historically the world is way more comfortable with war than they are with peace. There have been more years of war than years of peace in world history. So it is in this spiritual conflict as well. People are more conflicted, they're more comfortable with being conflicted than they are with being at peace. So conflict will be your norm if you stand for Christ, get used to that, position yourself well. And and you see, Christianity at its very best, at the very heart of, of what it is, it is the best practice for life. Andre Crouch wrote it this way, if heaven never were promised to me neither a land where we live eternally, it's still worth having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he gave me the light. Aren't those great words? I want to say to Andre, I wish I'd thought of those. You know, it's a great song. If heaven never were even promised, this is still the best life. Living in a world of darkness, he brought me the light. You see, Christianity is, at its core, the, the very best practice for life. People are going to get along. They're going to be healthier and happier. Families will be better. Communities will be better served. Schools will be better. Communities, everything will be better. Nations are stronger when they, when they just go back to the scriptures. But here's what the, here's what the detractors would say. They want you to be honest on the job. They want your hard work ethic they want you to love your family as long as it doesn't get in the way of their job. You know, they, they always want you to do more on the job. And they, they respect your discipline, but they want it all for themselves. They want it all without Jesus because Jesus would call them to a holy life. So we can't be surprised by that. Number five, don't be ashamed by it either. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but rather praise God that you bear his name. If the enemy can't destroy you, what the enemy wants to do is shut you down. 
So you being embarrassed, running away, being ashamed and shutting down, going private with your faith, just that, that's good enough. But is it going to kill you to be insulted? No, it will not kill you. Uh, and you know what? I don't need other people's, I don't need their approval to be happy. You're as happy as you choose to be. So you can choose the way of righteousness and truth and joy. That's your choice to make. Don't let them control you by shutting you down. Number six, commit yourself to God and continue to do good. Even when you suffer, commit yourselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. Some suffering is God's will. You don't want to hear that. I, I, I don't want to say it. You don't want to hear it, but you won't hear that some places. You know that, right? Some of us say all suffering's bad. It's from the devil. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I look at Joseph, lived in jail. Moses on the run. I, I, you know, Jeremiah, he's known as the crying prophet. How would you like that? You know, Hi, oh, yeah, I, know, I know you. Go away. You know, it, suffering's a part of the Christian life. Here's the Apostle Paul. He comes to Christ, gets beat up, thrown out of town, kicked to an inch of his life. They leave him out of town at death. He doesn't die. Instead, he continues to minister. As he ministers, he eventually gets on a ship. It wrecks. They land on an island. Guess who gets bit by the snake? I mean, you, know, you think, this guy is just bad news. Send him back. Suffering sometimes is up for the Christian. In fact, this is another sermon, but there are three kinds of suffering. Just write this on the side. This is free, won't be on the test. Um, there's common suffering. You know, when it rains, it rains on everybody, right? That's common. There's carnal suffering. There's suffering that you bring on yourself. <laughs> Ooh, carnal suffering. And then there's Christian suffering. It's suffering to the, according to the will of God. You're suffering because you did the right thing. So then those who suffer according to God's will, verse, uh, 1 Peter 4, 19, commit themselves to their creator. God is going to build your character in the midst of this. Suffering according to God's will is part of his plan of building something better in you. Okay? Number seven, recognize the source of the opposition is really Satan. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, against the powers of the dark world. You've heard it before. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, right? You've heard that phrase before, right? I'm going to give you another one. Satan hates you. Okay? Satan hates you and wants to hurt you. He doesn't necessarily want to kill you. He just wants you to make you miserable. So then you're a miserable rep, uh, representation of Christ. He may actually do more with you alive and in misery than he would do if he just killed you. So, but he's out to hate you. The sooner we open our eyes to that spiritual warfare, the struggle is not just flesh and blood, it's spiritual. The sooner we see what's really going on. Number eight, rise above the opposition. When the herald insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. I'm going to get you. No, he didn't do that. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In this suffering, you can't stoop to do what the detractors want you to do, and that's retaliate. Um, I love this. Uh, Booker T. Washington, the president of the Tuskegee Institute, here's the quote. I would permit no man, no matter what his color might be, to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. 
End of quote. Isn't that good? It, I, t- t- put that in our context. I permit no person, no matter what the situation, to shut me down in such a way so I degrade my soul by making me hate him. We continue to do good. We continue to do the right thing, even when the detractors want to, d- to get us to retaliate. Don't retaliate. Number nine, you, um, you refuse to retaliate. Romans 12, don't strike back. Don't go insult for insult. Don't repay evil for evil, okay? Just don't go there. Don't argue. It's not worth it. Some arguments are not worth winning even because when you get done, what do you have? End of the argument. How did Jesus treat people when he was unjustly treated? When they, when they struck him, either he said nothing, right? Or what did he say? Father, what do you say, class? Forgive them. They what? They don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. They called Jesus all kinds of horrible things. How did he respond? Every time. Always with truth, always with a measure of grace. So don't retaliate. And number 10, this is where this is all leading. Instead, respond with a blessing. Just when you think you'd love to retaliate, don't retaliate. Instead, bless them. That'll shock them, number one. (laughs) I thought you should hate me. Well, you know I should, but no, I'm not going to do that today. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Wouldn't it be great if someone mistreated you on the job and made you stay late, made you miss dinner, and you said, look, I'm so aggravated with you. And your boss is kind of glowing at that aggravation. I'm so ticked off at you. You just tell your boss, I'm going home tonight. I'm going to pray for you. (laughs) Telling God on you. How's that? (laughs) Whoa. Wouldn't that be cool? Let me know how it goes. <laughs> if you haven't written it down, write it, write it down, write it down again. Christianity is not for wimps. It's just not. It's not. We think, oh, uh, I'd love to have a flowery life. I'd love to do better, live in the suburbs, have three cars and a boat and a camper and you know, just retire early and enjoy my life, play a lot of golf. Let me tell you how it went for the followers of Jesus. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia by sword. Mark was drugged through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt, by horses, only to die. Luke was hanged in Greece for preaching. Peter was crucified. He didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. He didn't think he was worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So they crucified him upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from a pinnacle off a 100 feet drop. Somehow he survived, and so they went down into the pit and beat him to death, clubbed him to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Nathaniel was flailed to death by a whip in Turkey. Andrew was crucified whipped, then put on a cross. It took days for Andrew to die. He just didn't die, so they left him on the cross. Thomas was stabbed to death by spear while preaching in India. Jude was killed by arrows. Matthias, who replaced Judas, remember that name, Matthias, was stoned and then beheaded. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Nero for his faith. The only one who was not 
gosh awful killed was John, and they tried to they tried to kill him by boiling him, and, and he didn't die. So they banished him to an island, a, a forsaken island, and left him there to die. The next generation of Christians, after these guys died, it's now 90 A.D. Get this: the Bible is complete. The next generation of Christians are no-name Christians. We have very few names of great great leaders. No heroic acts, no phenomenal miracles, nothing from 90 A.D. on. Scriptures are complete. It's called, it's called the no-name generation of Christians. And yet, you know what happened? The church did just fine, even without them. By 200 AD, the, the church was still being crucified, crucified, chased down the street and killed. And Tertullian wrote it in, in about 200 AD. He was born in 160, died 225. The he, he wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, every time we kill one, six more pop up. By 300 AD, Diocletian, under the Roman Empire, confiscated all sacred literature. He burned everything he could see that was spiritually driven, any kind of book or manuscript or anything. He burned it all, but he wasn't satisfied. Then they went after the buildings these people were living in. By the way, most of the time the church met on a hillside or in the woods. They couldn't afford a building. They didn't have a building. When they started getting buildings, they burned these places of worship and then leveled them. It wasn't good enough to burn them. They had to level them to the ground, and they were so hostile by the end of that, then they began to chase the Christians and trample them and hunted them down like animals. By the 1500s, of course, the, we went into a period of dark ages, and then by the 1500s, a guy by the name of William Tyndall came. William Tyndall knew that the Bible was only written in Latin, gentlemen on your far left, it was only written in Latin, and the only way you could get to learn Latin was to commit yourself to be a member of the, not only the Catholic Church, but be a member of the priesthood in the Catholic Church. So you could only read the Bible if you were already committed into the system. No one really had a Bible they could understand. Tyndall said, that's just not right. I want to be able to read the Bible for my own self, and I want others to do so as well. So he went to translate the Bible himself. So this guy learned Greek. Greek is the language of the New Testament. Now, it's tough learning Greek. It takes years to learn Greek. He didn't have computers and the, the text that we have today. He learned Greek and began to translate the, the Bible. When they found out he was doing that, he had to go on the run because they were out, there was a bounty on his head to kill him for just putting the Bible in a language that you and I could read. In fact, if you go home today, if you have any Christian material at all, there's a, there's a Tyndale publishing house today. There's Tyndale schools around the world, seminaries and Bible schools. He eventually lands in jail. They catch him, and, and he's afraid for his family, not his own life, but his family. By the way, if you want to get at somebody, don't go after him. Go after his child, right? Yeah. You can just imagine how God feels about people who went after Jesus going after his son. I mean, you want to take my life, you want to come after me, that's one thing. You go after one of my kids, hey, you've just notched it up about 10. Well, He's concerned for his family. They're all in jail. John Rogers, the guy in the middle, then, he will translate the rest of the Bible. By the way, Tyndale then, when he got done with the New Testament, then he went to learn Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is way harder than Greek, and Greek is really hard. But with Greek, at least you have letters you can kind of, you kind of know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. You kind of, oh, yeah, sort of, not really, but... You could kind of read this a little bit. With Hebrew, you can't even do that. This guy learned Hebrew so he could begin with the Old Testament. 
translation, but he landed in jail. And John Rogers began to finish the translation work that Tyndale began. Thomas uh, Cranmer was another one of the, those guys who was active in the church in helping people worship, but they didn't even have a songbook, a prayer book, a psalm, or anything. So he began to just put together little booklets for people. But you have to understand, too, not everybody could read, most couldn't. So he's helping with education. It was really a good thing. And he helped Rogers within the church with a common book of prayer, it was called. And while he was being chased, Henry VIII, you have to hang on with the history here. Remember Henry VIII? Sing it. I am, yeah, okay, you remember him. Ernest, none of these people for the team. So. Henry VIII's king of England, but he doesn't like what the Catholic Church says because he wants to get a new wife. He's just, he wants a newer model. So he divorces his wife, gets a new wife. But he, they, they kick him out of church. He starts the Church of England. And he says to these guys, come to England, I'll give you a safe passage there. So then they can at least be there and be safe. So they're finishing their work. The only problem with it is, Henry VIII died. And when he died, Mary took over. His oldest daughter, she's called Mary Queen of Scots, Mary I is her name. But you don't know her as that. Mary is the oldest child, and you have to remember this, Henry married, I think, six times. How would you be if your dad kept remarrying and hated your mom? I mean, just think of the conflict and don't raise your hand because some of you are in it now. Some of you know what it's like. Some of you know what it's like to grow up like that. She hated her dad. So guess what she did to the writers of the scripture? Drugged them into the street, tied them to post, called them to recant of their faith. When they didn't, she lit them on fire. And she's, you know her as Bloody Mary. That's her name in history. It doesn't get better. While John Rogers is about to die, she gives him one last chance to recant of his faith. He's tied to the stake. The wood is stacked around him. And she offers him one final opportunity to recant. And in the crowd, John Rogers' son says, screams out to his father, Father, don't do it. Don't do it, Father. Only to have her light him up. And it's the blood of the saints that became the seed of the church. I'm convinced today, folks, we have it way, way, way too easy. Because you have so many opportunities. You, you, just way too easy. <clears throat> it was 1956. Um, some Wheaton College graduates from um, the United States had graduated from college, good Christian college, um, college my dad went to, college that Billy Graham went to. Uh, this guy, is, his name's Jim Elliott, graduated just two years ahead of my dad, okay? He was also a pilot, tinkerer, inventor, great guy. And a group of these pilots took their wives and their kids and went to Ecuador to share the good news of Jesus. And when they got off the plane, the village speared these guys and killed them. But before he died, while he was in preparation, he's quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And by the way, it happens in the news, but you don't get the full story of the news. You know this thing, Ebola? Guess who were the first Americans to get it? They were missionary doctors. 
who were the first to get it, who were there, who could have been in the U.S. and be making buku amounts of money, but instead went to West Africa and worked, and they did so gladly. They're with a company called Samaritan's Purse. We're doing the shoe boxes for Christmas, right? That's the company. That is the company. It's led by a guy by the name of Franklin Graham. You never heard of his dad, Billy, right? Boy, who just turned 96 this week, by the way. Do you know that? 96. But when Franklin makes the news, is it ever for giving kids all kinds of shoe boxes and lots of facility stuff and medical treatment? And that's what they do is they run a lot of clinics and a lot of schools. He does that all around the world. Is that what he's known for? No. You know what, when he makes the news? He makes the news because he told somebody they're sinning or because of his definition of marriage, which is from the Bible, or what is right and what is wrong. When you listen to Franklin Graham when he makes the news, it is because the deeds are evil, people promote the very thing that agitates them about him. See? But what you don't realize is the doctors are doing medical work, and they are the heroes of the faith. I'm convinced they're the heroes of the faith. So how do you live with all this? Knowing... I, okay, so I, I think I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to think. Now, this is how I'm going to do. But how am I going to live this out? So what did Jesus say? Go back to the text again, verse 13. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be salt of the earth. We're going to preserve where we can. We're going to add flavor where we can. That's what salt does. But we're going to preserve what we can. Salt was used to preserve meats and vegetables, any kind of food, really. And then verse 14, we're going to be the light of the world. And we're not going to let that thing be covered. We're not going to be held, let it held back. And you know what? Because our lives don't really matter. Because when we die, we just go to heaven anyway. What's to, what's to worry about? Not to be foolish with your life, but to realize Christians for years have gone through things much worse than us. So when our opportunity to stand for Christ comes, we will be a light, we will be preservative and, and salt, whether it's in our schools, in our, in our businesses, in our community, on our block. As good neighbors, we'll be salt, and we will be influencers for good. We'll be light. We will shed light. And in the same way, the end of the passage, verse 16, let your light shine before others. Here's my challenge to you that they may see your good deeds and not how good you are, but what? They'll see the glory of the Father who is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's bow for prayer and let's stand as we pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. It's, I, this has been really tough. Thank you for hanging on. But this is the message for the hour and God wants to do something in your life that even if it, it's nothing other than I am going to be way more committed to the faith. If that's what you take out of this, wonderful. If others of you realize I've been taking for granted the word of God in my life, the copies in my home and I don't read it every day like I know I could and should, I need it several times a day, then good for you. If you go away with a resolve that you're going to stand well as salt in a place that needs preservative, then good for you. And if you say, I'm going to be light on the hill that will not be covered, then good for you. But the last thing we need is for you to walk away and so say, oh man, I'm glad that's over with. And if you're here without Christ, you need to know this. You want to come to Christ, that'd be wonderful. Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again that you could trust him and come into the Christian life. But don't, 
Don't kid yourself. I don't want to sugarcoat it at all. Christianity is not for wimps. If you come to Christ, it's a wonderful, glorious forgiveness and a wonderful home in heaven. But it is not an easy trip for a Christ follower. So Father, may we see, even in our own lives, just how wonderfully amazing your grace is towards us. And may we be people, we pray, who live out that grace this week. We pray in Christ's name.